Good evening, church family. Thank you so much to Cliff and the team for leading us in worship and preparing me and us, I trust, for the word this evening. If you have your Bibles, please turn me to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, we'll be going through a lengthy portion. And a number of times this week, I was questioning our, our decision to deal with large chunks, but I'm going to stick with it tonight. Um, we we'll look at a, a chapter and a bit from Mark 11:27 all the way to the end of chapter 12. As I hope you'll see that this chapter really fits together. Uh, firstly, in this section, we see that Jesus is in the temple. Uh, in chapter 11:27, we see he enters the temple, and then chapter 13, verse on. Verse 1, he leaves the temple. And, and so in this section, Mark portrays us a, a day or a morning where Jesus is in the temple, and it's a day filled with confrontation. In fact, the section is grouped by five questions uh, that Jesus is posed with. Uh, a question by the Sanhedrin about his authority. Uh, you see that in chapter 11, 27 to 12 of the next chapter. Uh, then there's a question by the Pharisees about taxes, uh, chapter 12, verse 13 to 17. Uh, another question by the Sadducees uh, about the resurrection in verse 18 to 27. A question by a scribe about the commandments, verse 28 to 34. And then finally, Jesus asked them a question uh, about the identity of the Messiah, verse 35 to 37. And Mark concludes this section by painting a contrast between the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the sincerity of a widow in verse 38 to 44. That's where we're going. It's a lengthy passage, so please do bear with me as we work our way through this passage uh, together. Uh, let's hear it together. This is God's Word. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then do you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to teach, to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit. For the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and threatened and treated him shamefully. And he sent another. And him they killed. And so with many others... Some they beat, some they killed, and yet still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. 
What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, for, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinions, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother, brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you neither know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, about, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that, one, that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all, all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that the man answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him greatly. And in his teaching he said, 
Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like, and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box Many rich people putting in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she has, all she had to live on. Only so far in the reading of God's word may reform our lives to its truth. Uh, let's quickly pray and ask the Lord to help us with this text. Heavenly Father, we come before you this evening thankful for your grace. Thankful that we have your word. Thankful that we have this testimony about your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And thankful that your word indeed is living and active. And we would ask, Lord, as we come to consider this passage, as we come to consider and think upon all that you teach us, we pray that you'd make us wise, so that we would grow in our knowledge of you, so that we would walk in a manner that is pleasing to you, that we would be a people who produce good works, fruit that redounds to your glory so that we would be a people who endure hardships with much patience. And in all things, we would be thankful as we think upon and reflect upon all that you've done for us in your Son. Thank you that in Him we have forgiveness for our sins. Thank you that in Him we are part and parcel of your kingdom. And that in Him we can even come to you this evening boldly and ask that by your Spirit you'd illuminate this passage and apply it to our hearts. We pray that you'd meet us in our need and glorify your name through this evening, through this message. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. In his book, The Gay Science, Friedrich Nietzsche infamously declared that God is dead. God remains dead and we have killed him. And what he meant by that was, with the Enlightenment and with the supposed scientific revolution and with the separation of church and state and, and the rise of atheistic philosophy, God in European culture has finally been announced as dead. And although he warned that the death of God will produce anxiety and struggles and hardships, Nietzsche believed that the death of God is good and should be pursued. He even said elsewhere, God is dead, but given the way of men, they were, they may still, there may still be caves for thousands of years in which his shadow will be shown and we we still have to vanquish his shadow too. Now, according to Nietzsche, the death of God is good and his shadow must be removed. Why? So that we would take our rightful place. 
so that we would become the determiners of our lives. Ultimately, for Nietzsche and those following him, if God is dead and if we kill him, we become God. Now, let's recognize Nietzsche isn't the first person to espouse this idea. In fact, this idea of discarding God is as old as man himself. What is the sum of total human history, James Edward asks, if not the attempt to rid the universe of God? Think even of the Garden of Eden. Think of Adam and Eve in that first step toward that forbidden tree and that forbidden fruit. That first step was the first step of man trying to rid himself of God. It was the first attempt to live life without God. And Psalm 2, I think, gives voice to this desire of man in verse 2 to 3. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against God and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, let's get rid of God. Let's kill Him and let's become our own. God. Now, why bring all of this up in our study in Mark 11 and 12? Well, dear friends, I want you to see that Jesus, through Mark, is confronting this very desire of man to rid himself of God. Remember where we are in Mark's gospel. The day before on the Monday, Jesus not only cursed the barren fig tree, but he confronted the fruitless temple. And what was the result? Well, the religious leaders again desired to destroy him. Chapter 11, 18. Well, in our passage, it's Tuesday, and Jesus is in the temple again. And guess what? They're gunning for him. They approach him, and five times they confront him. And immediately after the first confrontation, Jesus gives this wonderful parable that interprets the situation for us. He speaks of these tenants in a vineyard. These tenants fail to produce fruit. That is, they refuse to give the fruit that is the rightful due of the owner of the vineyard. And when the owner sends servants, they beat them up, they kill them. And worse yet, when the owner sends his beloved son, they kill him and take his inheritance. And realize Jesus is saying in this parable, this is who these religious leaders are. They're these wicked tenants. This is what they will do. They will crucify the Messiah outside the city. And that's what happens, isn't it? Wednesday, the next day, the Jews plot to kill Jesus. Thursday, with the help of Judas, they arrest Jesus and, and try him. Friday, through the Romans, they crucify him outside of Jerusalem on a Roman tree. See, what he said of the rulers in Psalm 2 becomes true of these religious leaders in the temple. They conspire against God and against His anointed. And these religious leaders are just one other example of man's desire to be rid of God, if possible, to even kill him. 
And what should surprise us about this passage, dear friends, is the fact that this desire to be rid of God is not found in the philosophy department of the local university. No, it's found in the place where God is worshipped, in the temple. And that reality should be sobering for us. It's possible to be engaged with the things of God, to be close to the worship of God, and yet find yourself working and striving against God. I've been reading William Grinnell's classic book, The Christian and His Complete Army. I think it's going to take me 10 years. Uh, but this week, I've been convicted by it. He starts off by speaking about Ephesians 6, 12, and now we're called to wrestle against evil, wrestle against the rulers and the authorities and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We're called to wrestle. But what surprised me was before he even addressed of how we ought to wrestle against evil, he warns us that how often we actually wrestle against God. Uh, that was a drop kick in the chest this week. How often is it not true of us that we find ourselves wrestling and striving against God? Perhaps we grumble against His dark providences that afflict us. Perhaps we pursue actively the sins of this world instead of His Word. Perhaps we passively enjoy the, the delights of this world with, with, by neglecting Him even. We are marked more by the vices of the flesh than the fruit of the Spirit. See, we may, we may not be as foolish as Nietzsche and say we want to kill God and remove His shadow from us, but in many ways we live as if He's already dead, and in many ways we ignore that we do live under His shadow. Now, if, if, if that is us, if that's true of you, and it's certainly at times true of me, then this passage is, is helpful for us. Why? Because in this passage, Jesus, as God's anointed, draws our attention back to God. I, I would argue when Jesus answers all these questions about taxes and the resurrection and the commandments, he's doing more than just addressing those issues. No, he draws our attention to the God behind these issues. His answers, I would suggest, are, are profoundly theological. And for people who find themselves wrestling against God, Jesus gives us a theological vision that realigns us to our God. To help see this, let's walk through our passage There's Five things I want you to see very quickly through this passage. The first thing I want you to see is, is God's patience. God's patience. In chapter 11, verse 27, Jesus is confronted by the whole council of the Sanhedrin. And that council is made of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. And the religious leaders ask him a question about his authorities. Verse 28, by what authority, they ask, are you doing these things? Now, Jesus doesn't answer their question immediately. He doesn't answer it directly. He says he'll answer their question if they answer him a question. Verse 13, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? 
Now they decide rather to not answer as we see. If they say John's baptism was from God, then they will validate Jesus because John baptized and pointed to Jesus. But if they say John's baptism is from man, they will alienate the people who viewed John as a prophet. And so we see that Jesus outsmarts and silences his opponents. But realize, in a sense, Jesus does answer their question. Why else does he point back to the baptism of John? Think about what happened at John's baptism. Well, Jesus was baptized by John. And what happened when Jesus was baptized? Well, the heavens were opened up and the voice of the Father was, was heard, Mark 1.11, where the Father said, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. See, see, that's where Jesus gets his authority from. He, he gets it from the Father as the beloved Son. And Jesus alludes to this even in the parable of the sending servant, of the servant, of the servant. The owner finally sends, verse 6, his beloved Son. And the sending of this Son is a picture of God's patience. Realize both the ministry of John and Jesus is a display of God's patience with sinful men. Despite rebelling again and against God, despite being wicked tenants that want to serve self, God still sends servants. He still sends his son. He still calls for repentance. God's patience actually is is almost unnatural. Actually, actually, from a human perspective, it is unnatural. Put yourself in this parable. Imagine with me you had murderous tenants who've killed your servants. Tell me, knowing all of this, would you send your son? I, I sure as hell wouldn't. And such is the love and the patience of God. He sends his beloved son to hateful sinners, knowing that they will kill him. But in sending his son, knowing that they will kill him, he accomplishes salvation for those said sinners. This is alluded to at, in verse 10 to 11, where Jesus quotes Psalm 118, verse 22 to 23. He says there, the stone that the builders rejected, what, however they rejected, they've crushed, they've killed the son. And that murdered, crushed son has become the cornerstone. It's, it's become the new foundation for the new temple where, where sinners get to meet with the living God. And Jesus says, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Why? Because it's through that murdered, rejected, crushed son that sinners like us can be reconciled to God that we can be forgiven of our sins. But notice this parable also showcases the, the certainty of God's punishment. Just as the owner of the vineyard will destroy the wicked tenant, so too God will punish the wicked. He will judge the rebellious. But again, even here, the certainty of punishment then highlights and magnifies God's patience now. Patience that calls for repentance, 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to, to fulfill, fulfill, fulfill His promises, as some count slowness. But He's 
impatient toward you. Not wishing that any would perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, for those of us who are striving against God and wrestling against Him, behold His patience with you. He still hasn't judged this world. He he still offers His Son as your Savior. He still calls you to repent and to believe and to be forgiven. O rebels who wrestle against God, behold His patience. But but why must we repent? Why must we turn from our sin and and turn to Him? Well, one answer is, whether we like it or not, is, is because we belong to Him. That's the next thing I want you to see from this text, God's possessions. In chapter 12, verse 13 onwards, the the Sanhedrin uh, confront him separately onwards. Uh, First up are the Pharisees and the Herodians. And and earlier we saw how Jesus confounded them with a question, and and here they try their turn, try to return their favor. Yet unlike them, Jesus doesn't keep silent. Uh, With a hypocritical veneer of respect, they ask him in verse 14, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, in the words of General Akbar, it's a trap, right? If Jesus supports taxation, then they'll alienate Jesus to the people, and if he refuses taxation, they'll set the Romans upon him. Now, I don't think Jesus is afraid of either outcome. Nevertheless, he pushes a greater point, a deeper truth. Look at his brilliance in verse 15 onwards. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now, Now note two things at least here. On the one hand, Jesus points out our duty to our rulers, right? We are citizens of two kingdoms. We're not only citizens of God's kingdom, but we're citizens of the kingdoms of this world, and therefore we ought to give them what they're owed, whether that's taxes or honor or respect. Paul teases that out in Romans 13. But on the other hand, note, and this I think is actually the greater point, Jesus points out our duty to God. He moves from this question about taxes to our relationship to God. If coins that bear Caesar's image belongs to Caesar then human beings made in God's image belong to Him. And so whether you like it or not, whether you admit it or not, Jesus is reminding these leaders and He's reminding us we do not belong to ourselves. No, we've been stamped, as it were, with God's image, and therefore we are His. You belong to Him. And therefore, is it not utter foolishness to think that we can get rid of Him? Is it not utter thievery to say that we want to live a life apart from Him? Realize, until we know whose we are, we won't know who we are. And Nietzsche was right. Remove God, and the result is anxiety and despair. 
But Nietzsche is also wrong. You cannot cure that anxiety or despair by exalting man. No, true peace, true satisfaction, true rest, true wholeness is found in giving ourselves again to the God whose image we bear. Until we rest in God, as Augustine famously said, there is no rest for us. But this leads you to the third thing I want you to see, and that is God's power. In verse 18 to 27, the Sadducees try their luck after the Pharisees, and, and they try a reductio ad absurdum. That is, they try to show that Jesus is a poor teacher by reducing his position on the resurrection to absurdity. And so they paint, based on leveret marriage, the scenario of a wife who had multiple husbands. And they ask if, if the resurrection is true, as Jesus believes, then whose wife will she be in heaven? Now, unlike before, Jesus is quite confrontational with these Sadducees. Remember, these were the teachers who boasted in the Torah. These were the keepers of the temple. And Jesus says to them, you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Again, Jesus' response is twofold. On the one hand, he says that after the resurrection, no one is given in marriage. See, they were thinking that if the resurrection life happens, then that life needs to be like our life, like the life we have now. Yet the life to come, if you know the Scriptures, is, is vastly different. See, when the Scriptures speak of the final resurrection, it speaks of God's transformative power to bring about a new creation, a creation that is similar, yes, but vastly different, free from sin, free from pain. As 1 Corinthians 2.9 would say, quoting Isaiah 64.4, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. See, the Sadducees failed to see God. They failed to see a big God who has power even over creation. And that's why, on the other hand, Jesus again draws our focus to God, namely the fact that God is not the God of the dead, but the living. In Exodus 3, God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob, and, and what that means according to Jesus is that God's covenant commitment and promises extend beyond this life into the very next. Uh, these, these patriarchs have been dead for centuries, yet God will redeem them from the grave. Why? Because He is their covenant God, and His power is over life and death. And dear friends, the power of God to bring about the new creation, the, the power of God to, to faithfully raise His covenant people is the hope of His people because it is the hope that says death is no match for this God. The, the Sadducees should have known Deuteronomy 32:39. See now, God says that I, even I, I am He. There is no God beside me. I kill, I make alive, I wound, I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. Now, if, 
if that is true, if, if God is the living God who has power over life and death, what is rebellion then but the rejection of life? What is striving with God but it's a curing of our own death? See, our only hope in life and death, as the Heidelberg says, is that we belong, body and soul, to the Lord our God. And therefore, to strive against Him is to strive for hopelessness. But, but how do we know we belong to God? How do we know that we are His covenant people? Well, one answer to that is that we have a relationship with Him and walk in His ways. That's the next thing I want you to see. Fourthly, take note of God's precepts. The Pharisees have had their turn, so have the, scribe, or the, the Sadducees. And now, in verse 28 to 34, the, a scribe approaches it. Unlike before, this time at least, there's, an, there's a, a, a veneer of sincerity with this question. And so, verse 28, the, the, the scribe asks the question, which commandment is most important of all? Uh, we know Jesus' answer quite well. He quotes Deuteronomy 6.4, Leviticus 19.18, and he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these, Jesus says. Now, in Jesus' day, uh, recognized the law was a major Subject for discussion among the Jews. The Jews listed 613 laws, 248 positive commands, 365 negative commands. They spend a lot of time balancing which are heavy commands, important commands, and which are light commands and not so important commands. They love to debate which are the most important commands. If you go read the rabbis, each of them gives their two cents. Yet here Jesus enters the debate, he enters into the discussion. And he silences, he brings it to an end because he returns to the heart of the law, which is love. See, see, God wants obedience, but he wants obedience that flows out of love. Love that loves deeply and widely. Love that is fully engaged with God and love that is freely offered to others. As Paul explains, Romans 13:10, love is the fulfilling of the law. But here's the problem with the Jewish leaders. All their law, in all their law-keeping, they'd actually missed the heart of the law. They've missed the God of the law. They live by the rules of God, but not in a relationship with this God. And so note again, Jesus draws our attention to God. Did you notice how he started his answer? He didn't just say, love God, love others. No, he quoted the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Remember, the Shema isn't just a statement about, about monotheism, the fact that there is one God. No, it's also a statement of minority that, that this one God is our God. Unlike the pagans who worship their idols, we will worship Him. We belong to Him. We know Him. We relate to Him. We follow Him. We love Him. We adore Him. And therein lies the problem of these religious leaders. They failed to love God as one. How? Because in their rebellion, in their striving against God, in His anointed, they were essentially saying this, I am the one who matters. I am the one who wants the honor. I am the one who wants the praise of the people. 
Dear friends, is that not what all sin is at the end of the day? Is that not what the heart of Nietzsche is? I will do what I want because I am the one who matters. And this isn't just their problem. It's not just Nietzsche's problem. It's our problem. Who here hasn't loved God as one? Who here hasn't loved God and failed to love Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength? Who here hasn't in sin said in one way or another, I am the one who matters? See, we need a Savior because every single one of us has failed to live according to God's precepts. And this leads me to the fifth thing I want you to see, God's prince or just God's anointed. I had to keep up the alliteration. Up until this point, the religious leaders have, have questioned Jesus. They've tried to stump him, to silence him, discredit him, yet he's, he's won the debate. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He turns the, to the crowd. He tries to turn the tables. He does turn the tables. And he now asks the question, verse 35, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, before he allows anyone to ask, he quotes Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And Jesus points out that the mighty David, the king of Israel, under the inspiration of the Spirit, calls the Messiah Lord, not just Lord, but my Lord. And Jesus' larger point is this, the Messiah is greater than David. Not only is he over David as David's Lord, but he's the Messiah who sits at the very right hand of God. Now, why, why is he bringing up this challenge? Why end his confrontation with this question? Well, it seems to me he's going back to the first question. He's, in effect, answering their question about his authority. He wants us and them to know that he has authority because he's more than just a descendant of David. He's the transcendent son of God. This has been Mark's point all along. Mark 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And the Son of God sent from the Father is the only hope that rebels like you and me have. In Jesus, we see God's precepts perfectly obeyed. He loved his Father with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. He loved others as himself. How do we know that? He went to the cross. He took our place. He fulfilled the will of his Father to save us. Becoming that murdered son. In Jesus, we see God's power displayed, right? He was raised on the third day. He conquered death. He's the first fruit of our resurrection, of the resurrection to come. And in Jesus, we see God reclaiming his possessions. He's renewing us after his images. He's making us his own again, transforming us by his spirit. And in Jesus, we see God's patience beautifully displayed. He still offers sinners a Savior, and He still offers saints struggling a mediator who encourages, who uplifts, who, who grants mercy and grace in your time of need. See, this Jesus sent from the Father is the only hope for fallen men, and He is the transcendent Son of God and every single one of us has to deal with him. That's the picture of Psalm 2, isn't it? 
In Psalm 2, we, we not only see that the rulers strive against God and His anointed, but we see that God's anointed is called God's Son, and God's Son is given the nations as His heritage, and every nation, we are told, must answer to Him. Psalm 2, verse 10 to 11, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling, Kiss the Son. Yield yourself to Him. Honor Him. Lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kin. But blessed, happy, content are all those who take refuge in Him. Did you find you have to deal with this Jesus? You have to deal with the Son of God. Either you continue to strive against Him or you yield yourself to him and live by faith and trust in him. I think it's appropriate that Jesus leaves the temple, and as he does so, he contrasts the hypocrisy of, of the scribes with, with the sincerity of a widow, but it's more than just a contrast between uh, hypocrisy and sincerity. It's really a contrast between a giver and a taker. See, the scribes, are Pharise- the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders are takers. They, they want the place of honor. They want the esteem. They, they want respect. They, they even rob widows, we are told. At the end of the day, they're all about taking for themselves. But Jesus says they will receive condemnation. The widow, however, is different. She's a giver. Out of her poverty, out of her need, she gives all that she has to her God. And at the end of the day, Jesus says, she receives commendation. And the question for you and me this evening is, are you a giver or a taker? Will you like the Pharisees and like Nietzsche be a taker? You want the place of honor. You want to be the determiner of your life. You want to say what goes. Or will you take the place or give the place of honor to Christ? Yielding to Him as your Lord and Savior, as the one who saves and satisfies because He has given Himself for you. Will you be a giver or taker? Uh, We close this morning by uh, singing a Francis Avergill hymn, and I can't resist not quoting her this evening. And I pray that this particular hymn would be our prayer as we think about and reflect upon this passage in the week ahead. She says this in this hymn, In full and glad surrender, I give myself to thee, thine atelier only and evermore to be. O Son of God, who lovest me, I will be thine alone, and I, all I have and am, Lord, shall henceforth be thine own. Trust that this would be our prayer, that we'd give ourselves to the Lord who has given himself for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for your word. So thankful for the way that you challenge us and reveal to us the various ways we strive against you. And I just want to say thank you, dear Lord, that 
not all your people strive against you. Thankful for the many here that love you, the many here who serve you wholeheartedly, the many here who, who have given all for you because you have given all for them. But even for them, we pray that you'd encourage them in this message to keep Christ front and center. I also want to pray especially for those in our midst this evening that, that have played around with you, that have entertained you only when it seems convenient. For those who have imbibed the philosophies of Nietzsche, who, who live outside of your shadow, who live as if you're already dead. Oh dear Lord, would you not revive, would you not bring life again to dead hearts? Would you not add to those who would be saved? Would you not bring us as a people, all of us, to that place where we give ourselves wholeheartedly in love to you? Especially as we think and reflect upon the Lord Jesus Christ, how he became that murdered son. so that we would become sons clothed in righteousness, accepted and beloved and blessed in Him. Would you not do this in our midst? Would you not take hold of what belongs to you? Your people belong to you. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.